0: Dave, we've uh, we've unified Italy, so uh, that, well, just, did, that just <laughs> that just
1: Maribaldi had something to do. With
0: that. <laughs> they, that just leaves Germany.
1: Oh boy, yep.
0: So um, Benedict Anderson has this book, Imagine Communities," that had a great impact on me, and one of them one of the things he says is that the national community is formed by things like the novel which is written in the vernacular so that people can read it. And they feel like all the people that can read it are part of a community and the newspaper. Right. Right. The kind of reading community. There's a third one too, but I can't remember what it is. Maybe a map or a census or a museum. No, those are, those are like in the afterward, but yeah, novels, newspapers. Yeah. So
1: there's, before you can become nationalist, you have to imagine the nation as your, your community. So how does that happen? Um, language uh religion geographic location obviously but yeah there's a thing called cultural nationalism and in the case of the germans uh it's very often traced back to uh the brothers Grimm and their collections of uh you know fairy tales uh They published them and the weird thing that happened was you would have somebody in Bavaria reading these stories and then finding out, oh wait, that story comes from, you know, Pomerania, northern Germany. My, My grandmother used to tell me that story. I didn't know it came from there. Those people are more like us than I thought they were. So you have this shared culture that begins to I guess breed this nationalism. And the other thing I would add for I don't know if Anderson mentions it, but it's a shared experience. you go su- you go through something together, it creates a bond. You know anybody that's been to high school, for example, you share a bond with those people because they went through similar experiences to your own. It doesn't mean you have to like them. it just means you have something in common with them, right? So the Germans shared the experience of being pushed around by everybody else so the 30 years war when spanish and and french and swedish armies were marching all over their territory and they couldn't do anything about it to uh, the french revolution and napoleon when the germans got pushed around and were forced to you know ally and serve napoleon and then they were a battleground and again that feeling of you know why can't we be the powerful ones you know instead of getting pushed around all the time And they tried uh, in 1848 and 49. They tried to unite Germany and failed. And they learned some lessons from that. Unfortunately, they learned different lessons than the Italians. The Italians learned that we need somebody from outside to help us kick out the Austrians. The Germans figured, well, we could do this. We just can't do it by having an assembly and declaring, you know, a new country. We need what what they called the Macht. Macht is the German word for might, as in, you know, uh, mighty mouse. So
0: So why couldn't they have just have a meeting and and elect a king? Yeah,
1: They did. And then they offered the throne to the king of Prussia and he turned it down. And as all the other revolutions of 1848 and 9 were crushed, they were the last ones remaining. And they realized, well, we have no real power we can make pronouncements we can't enforce them so they had this uh exaggerated respect for power in the sense of armed might
0: because the revolution was crushed by foreign armies basically like austria and
1: yeah and they figured if we had had an army we could have enforced our unification you know and it would have happened and there's a little bit of uh, respect, too, for uh, Prussia, for their military strength, their military history.
0: Uh, there's another question that I, arises for me. Austria is German-speaking, but it was never really part of this, like it was never even really considered part of this debate, right?
1: Oh, no, they were.
0: Oh, they were, okay.
1: okay. Oh, yeah. The the uh, Austrian homelands are very much part of the uh, objective yes. the German Empire. Okay. Okay. And when you're electing the Holy Roman Emperor, the Archduke of Austria is one of the voters. Okay. So no, they're the uh, the Habsburgs and the history of Germany are pretty tightly intertwined, that, as they are in this episode again. Okay. But first, we have to go and visit your friend uh, Otto von Bismarck.
0: Oh, what an interesting character that is.
1: Yeah, yeah. a yeah. little different from Garibaldi, but... So he was born in 1815, and he is an East Prussian Junker. That's spelled J-U-N-K-E-R. Um, there was a World War II uh, German aircraft company, Junker. They made uh, medium bombers. Uh, but a Junker in this era is uh, rural landed gentry, you know, minor aristocracy, with a tradition of um, service to the king, but they're also tied to the land. So the expression is they have mud on their boots. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty doing, you know, doing the work. So the tradition for a Junker is uh, as a young man, you learn a little bit about running the farm, and then you go off to university. Not really for an education, more to... Uh, blow off steam, or, or the old expression, to sow your wild oats. So you go uh, and uh, drink, you chase women, uh, you get into fights, um, and and you get it out of your system. Actually, university hasn't changed all that much, I suppose. But in the, in in the uh, in the fine German tradition or the fine Prussian tradition you have to prove that you got into fights. This is where you have to earn your dueling scars. And this is just such a weird tradition. I thought I, I I don't know how much it has to do with German unification. It's just an interesting story. So how would somebody know that you had dueling scars? Obviously they can't be under your clothing and they, you don't want them on your back. That's (laughs) dishonorable. So they have to be visible and that means they have to be on your face. Hmm. How do you get dueling scars on your face that don't, you know, take some teeth or a part of your nose, or, or you don't want to lose an eye? You want so a
0: Holly, We want one of those Hollywood scars that looks good in, in spite of being a, a scar.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it has to be on your face. It has to be somewhere that it's not going to disfigure you.
0: Yeah, Sa- a so, sexy scar. It has to
1: be yeah. right, and that means on the corners of your forehead. Right. You want matching scars, one on each side. So what these guys did is they, they wore dueling helmets that left those areas bare.
0: Oh, you know, it's like cauliflower ear for MMA fighters, I guess. In jujitsu. Like you're, Is that a badge of honor? Yeah, when you when your ear is kind of ground into the mat, you get um it kind of becomes uh, swollen, and unless you deal with it right away by lancing the, the swelling, you get this kind of cauliflower ear. You get your ears become messed up. So, all the all the great, you know, wrestling and jujitsu based fighters have this cauliflower ear, pretty much.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, these East Prussian Junkers would uh, get drunk and um, swing sabers at each other. Not not fencing. Not trying to stab with the point, but slashing with a saber to earn these cuts on their, on their heads. Uh, Anyway, the picture that you get is that these guys went out and just raised hell. Mm. And apparently Bismarck was noted particularly as a hellion. He was uh, very intelligent, but also a little bit wild, a little bit undisciplined and, and crazy. So as a Junker, he is supposed to now come home, uh, marry a nice girl, raise a family, and then go to work for the king. Your choice is the civil service or the army in the old Prussian tradition. Bismarck, though, is a little too intelligent, a little too restless. He has his eye on a career as a diplomat. Uh, I believe he was training to become a lawyer, but he put his career in jeopardy by basically running off taking unauthorized leaves so that he could chase after uh, a couple of English girls. I don't know if he was chasing them at the same time or one after the other <laughs> but his early career is very interesting. This is not the guy that you know people think of uh, when they think of him later on. Uh, by 1847 he was 32 years old he was chosen as a representative in the newly created prussian parliament the landtag uh he is in terms of isms he is a royalist he is a beyond conservative he's a reactionary yeah he is uh famous for one thing at this point and that's a sharp tongue <laughs> and in this landtag he defends the king's divine right. I mean, we haven't heard divine right of kings since before the French Revolution. So this guy is way beyond conservative. He, he's a reactionary. Uh, somehow he managed to get himself a career.
0: So this is just before uh, 1848,
1: right? He's, yeah, he's- yeah, and when the revolution came, he, he was against the unification of Germany. He's not a German nationalist. He's a Prussian nationalist. And he thought that if Germany unites, Prussia would be swallowed up and and would disappear in in the greater German. So he's against German unification. Again, not what you think of when you think of his later career. He was also
0: Uh, against... Colonize a, colonies abroad for most of his life until he basically organized the scramble for Africa. See you later episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, we can get into the reasons for that for sure. Um, after the 1848 revolution, the king made him Prussian envoy to the German Confederation in Frankfurt. So this is now the post failed unification uh, German Assembly. Think of it as you know the United Nations of Germany. Uh, so it basically
0: and, does a lot of talking, maybe m- writes a report once in a while. Can't uh, really... Actually,
1: he made it his business to annoy the Austrian delegate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. He, he just set out to be annoying. When the, uh, he dressed like him, oh my uh, apparently smoked a smelly cigar and blew the smoke in the Austrian guy's direction. And whenever the Austrian guy wanted uh, anything – Uh, whatever, a privilege for Austria, Bismarck immediately demanded the same privileges for Prussia. So he was just annoying. I can't think of a better word. Uh, He ended up fighting a duel, not with the Austrian delegate, but with someone else. He was so successfully annoying that someone wanted to kill him. (laughs) In the 50s, he had a couple of other stops in his career that were really important later. He was made ambassador to Russia where he met the Tsar. Uh, He was also briefly ambassador to France, where he met Napoleon III. He also met several more key um, statesmen, I suppose you would call them. He met Palmerston uh, of Britain, uh, the foreign secretary, Russell, and the future prime minister, Disraeli. Now, what's interesting is he's merely an ambassador, which means he's beneath notice. But he met the Tsar, Napoleon, and these top English statesmen. And according to you know, several biographies of Bismarck, he, he took their measure. Right. He got a really good idea of what they were about. Meanwhile, they didn't really get his, if you
0: understand yeah, where I'm Because he's a out. nobody, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then came the big turn in his career, the new king of Prussia, uh, Wilhelm wanted to expand his army. In fine Prussian tradition, Prussia was growing, the economy was expanding, the population was rising, and he wanted to increase the size of the army. But now he's dealing with the Landtag, a parliament, which is full of liberals. Liberals don't want high taxes, liberals don't want a big army that can be used against them, so the liberals are refusing to vote the funds
0: Oh my goodness, this is the Glorious Revolution, the French Revolution. They always start with this the same problem, right? Trying to to squeeze money out of the parliament.
1: Yeah. So the story goes that Wilhelm wanted a pit bull. He wanted an attack dog. He made Bismarck chancellor, which is like prime minister. And he gave him one instruction. Do you, do you want to do the voice for it? What? No. Build me an army.
0: <laughs> Is that, that, that's Sar- that's Saravan, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> no, that's well, uh, Sauron II. Oh, Saravon. right, right, right. Yeah. So the king's instructions are, build me an army. And he said, I don't care how you do it. What he expected was Bismarck, being sharp-tongued and annoying, would, would fight and squabble with parliament. Get him the army, and then the king can, you know, uh, make friends with Parliament by firing Bismarck, who should be thoroughly unpopular by that point. <laughs> what he didn't expect was the way Bismarck actually went and, and did it. Bismarck uh, got the king his bigger army uh, by cheating.
0: Wait, does did, did this desire for a bigger army have anything to do with what was going on with Italy and... Um... The Crimean uh, War, or did they feel like they were marginalized a little bit by those events?
1: I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But if you remember our early episodes on absolutism and, and so on, uh, Prussia was always a small country with a medium-sized army. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now they're a medium-sized country and they want a big army.
0: Okay. They want to punch above their weight. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it related to what's been going on? Sure, I I just I don't know Wilhelm the first all that well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bismarck found a way instead of fighting in parliament, which he did anyway. But <laughs> instead of fighting in parliament, he he just used portions of the previous year's budget, uh, uh, counting earmarked checks. for other things, and, and just spent them on the army. And then he uh, hired his own tax collectors, sent them out in advance and asked people if they'd be willing to pay their taxes directly to the king instead of to, you know, the government, the, the, the landtag. Well, liberals and, and radicals would refuse, but conservatives would say, sure. So he collected a big pile of tax money early, illegally, and then uh, expanded the army. And yeah, as he, you can imagine, the liberals were pretty, pretty upset with him.
0: Yeah, what are they going to do, though?
1: Well, they squealed, they complained, they made speeches. You will embarrass us across Germany, they accused him. Uh, The Germans admire us for our liberalism and our constitution. And that's when Bismarck gave gave a a very famous answer. He said, that is not what Germany admires about Prussia. They admire our Macht, our might. Mm -hmm. They admire the Prussian army and our willingness to use it. And shortly after this, he made that really uh, famous speech known as the Blood and Iron Speech. He was talking to the Budget Committee, uh, September 30th, 1862, and he said, the great questions of the time will not be resolved by speeches and majority decisions. That was the great mistake of 1848 and 49 but by blood and iron. So the great mm. questions of our time will be settled by blood and iron. Uh, later on, he kind of tried to sidestep what that actually meant, but it's fairly clear. I don't think there's much uh, reason to debate what he meant.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's it's, uh, it's interesting because, yeah, this is one of these moments where like you get an arch-conservative Worldview that I think, like Che Guevara, would certainly agree with that, right? Like the that's that is how a lot of revolutionaries think too. Mao Mao Zedong, you know, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Ah,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it's um same idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't disagree. So he remained chancellor. I guess that's the important thing. Is he, he made the king happy? The liberals were furious with him, but couldn't outmaneuver him. Uh, and he remained chancellor. And he was chancellor in 1864 when the Schleswig-Holstein question arose. Uh, there's a tendency to use hindsight and say that, you know, Bismarck created all these things. This one dropped in his lap. Th- this is something that happened uh, And he simply took advantage of it. So Schleswig and Holstein are two duchies ruled by dukes. And they are the very north of Germany where it connects with Denmark. So Holstein uh, was about 90% German and 10% Danish. Hmm. Schleswig was uh, 50-50, 60-40. I'm not sure of the exact proportion. The interesting thing is that the Duke of Schleswig is King Christian of Denmark, and the Duke of Holstein is also King Christian of Denmark. So if you remember our earlier episodes, you have people with multiple titles. So Christian the, Christian the Ninth is King of Denmark, Duke of Schleswig, Duke of Holstein, and maybe that just takes a long time to write on documents, or maybe he just wanted to uh, rationalize his titles, but... He basically decided, I'm just going to make Schleswig and Holstein part of Denmark. I mean, I rule there anyway, so I'm going to incorporate them. Yeah. And that was a boo-boo because <laughs> the German uh, assembly went berserk and Bismarck saw an opportunity. So did the Austrians. Now, the Austrians, having been kicked out of Italy, have really you know, it's almost like they turned around 180 degrees and started paying a lot more attention to what was going on in Germany. Mm-hmm. So both Prussia and Austria ended up declaring war on Denmark and poor King Christian, who's just trying to shuffle his titles and rebrand his, his corporation, uh, ends up in a war, which obviously he loses very quickly. Uh, Denmark is defeated and has to cede.
0: Well, what did he have? He had a kind of conventional army, but
1: well, Denmark's pretty small compared yeah. to Austria. But then
0: <laughs> did so? What was he hoping that England would back him or something? Like, why he would didn't,
1: he didn't think it would come to a war? Okay, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. I'm I'm the Duke of Schleswig and the Duke of Holstein and right. the King of Denmark. I'm just you know reorganizing. Right. I'm re renaming my company. Right. Right. Right, so I I own these things. I can do what I want. Well, yeah, he was wrong.
0: Well, you know the the idea of it falling into Bismarck's lap. You know the the sentence before uh, the. the the great questions of our time will not be resolved by speeches and majority decisions is Prussia must concentrate and maintain its power for the favorable moment which has already slipped by several times (laughs) (laughs) Prussia's boundaries according to the Vienna treaties are not favorable to a healthy state life so yeah, sure, it fell in his lap but that's what he was all about (laughs) good
1: for you, fact checking on me eh? (laughs) yes, that's true the favorable moment, Bismarck is an opportunist yeah And this one dropped in his lap and he took full advantage. So uh, Schleswig and Holstein originally were going to be kept kind of in trust. They would be administered by the German assembly and and kept there for the day that Germany unified. But Bismarck instead talked the Austrians into splitting them and Prussia and Austria ended up administering these two provinces. Austria got... uh, Holstein and Prussia got Schleswig, I think. Yeah. So now Bismarck begins maneuvering a little bit. How can I turn this even further to my advantage? Well, you know his past history. He's annoying. And he understands the advantage of annoying people, of antagonizing them. So he stirred the pot and created... A little dispute over Schleswig and Holstein. Really, all he's doing is antagonizing Austria.
0: Was nobody onto the? Like, was nobody able to say, "Hey, he's just trying to"? Was there people commenting about how he was pulling these strings at
1: the time? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things he did is, well, Austria, in order to get to Holstein, in some places had to travel across Prussian railroads. And Bismarck just had the Prussian Railroad people, you know, be obstructionist. <laughs> he just had them delay or, or uh, cause trouble for the Austrians. And when the Austrians complained, he would say, oh, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll make sure that it stops, which, of course, he didn't. He did the opposite. He turned it up another notch. So, yeah, they know he's doing it to antagonize them. But now how does it look? Bismarck is annoying austria and they're very conscious of an audience the entire german confederation so austria takes about as much as they can stand and then make a really big mistake and declare war on prussia so this is the 1866 austro-prussian war it's a little more complicated than that i just don't want to get into the you know an hour long discussion of the causes of the austro-prussian war just to keep it simple, Bismarck antagonized Austria and they lost their cool. They saw this as a competition for leadership of Germany and they weren't prepared to be pushed around. So they declared war, uh, over a minor dispute over the administration of Schleswig and Holstein. So the real cause of this war is who is going to be top dog in Germany and Bismarck has been preparing for this. Austria, not as much. They basically declared war in a, in a fit of temper. But Bismarck has, has done his homework, as they say. So he knows Napoleon III personally. And he may even have gotten an assurance of French neutrality. Besides, at this point, it's well known that Napoleon has his own issues, the Maximilian and Mes- Mexico fiasco, which we covered before. So Bismarck figures Napoleon's busy. Britain has nothing at stake. You know, once the war starts, they'll probably just say, oh, let's have a Congress and, you know, discuss things. Russia is unlikely to intervene on Austria's side. They're still uh, seething over Austria, you know, betraying them in the Crimean War. And actually, Bismarck enjoys very positive relationship uh, with the Tsar, having helped him put down a Yet another Polish uprising. Italy is even a possible ally here. They still want the missing pieces. Venice is under Austrian control. So Bismarck's looked at all the other major powers. They are probably going to be neutral or even on his side. Austria, however, is is alone. They take their grievance to the German uh, assembly, the the Diet. Uh, Bismarck claims that they're violating the rules here. <laughs> and there we go. We have a war. And so this
0: is also like instructive in terms of how he s- understands warfare, right? Like Napoleon saw it in terms of defeating your enemy on the battlefield with superior military force. And Bismarck sees it as a diplomatic exercise in a lot of ways. Like,
1: you, you don't start the war until you are ready. Yeah. And until you make sure that nobody's coming in. On, on their side or against you. Yeah, that's what I mean by doing his homework. He, he lays the groundwork before going to it. So this war split Germany, uh, the, the, the rest of the German Confederation. Uh, well, there were 14 states, most of them in the north and, and central part of Germany that supported Prussia. Uh, six were neutral and 12 supported Austria. Among the 12 were some of the largest German states, Bavaria, Saxony, Hanover, Württemberg, Hesse, and Baden. Italy actually declared war on Austria, and well, away we went. Prussia had several advantages in the war, and I believe Bismarck was aware of most of them. One of those was universal conscription, so every Prussian male served three years in the army. So he's been trained. When he, when he goes back to civilian life, if you call him up, it's it's pretty easy to, to quickly retrain him. Uh, he's partially trained already. The Austrians didn't do this. They had a standing army and their army, do you remember we talked about this in the Crimean War, the Russian army was basically spread around to prevent peasant uprisings. Right. Well, the Austrian army is used in a similar way. So Hungarian troops will be stationed in Italy, for example, to prevent an Italian uprising. And Italian troops will be stationed in the Czech lands. And Czechs will be... So you never let these guys be stationed in their home country for fear that they will join in another 1848-style national uprising. So when it comes time to mobilize your army... Well, the Hungarian units are in one place and the new Hungarian troops that are supposed to join them will be raised in Hungary. They have to travel to join those units. So the Austrian mobilization will be significantly slower. Then you have the factor of industrialization. The Prussians have built quite a few miles of railway and they've practiced how to use them in case of war. So what happens is that the more industrialized Prussia mobilizes and moves their army much more quickly than the Austrians can. And that means they can concentrate more troops uh, more quickly. And they cross the border into Bohemia where the Austrian army is still gathering.
0: So this is a blitzkrieg. Uh,
1: They don't use any term even remotely like that, but it's certainly attracts the, notion, the the attention of other countries. That speed of movement at the beginning of a war is really important. Weapons are important as well. The Prussians, uh, the Austrians are still using a muzzle-loaded rifle, so they have to put the powder and the bullet in the end of the gun and use the ramrod and so on. And the Prussians are using the Dreyse needle gun. This is a bolt-action rifle, uh, much more modern and can be reloaded and fired much more quickly.
0: (laughs) Was there grease on the cartridges? Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, Probably. Probably. In terms of cavalry, they're about equal. The Austrians might even have an advantage there. But in terms of artillery, the Prussian guns are already a little bit better. So in this war, the Austrians didn't have much trouble defeating the Italian army um, and the Italian fleet Garibaldi was the only guy who could win a victory uh, at uh, Bezatka in the, on the 21st of July. But meanwhile, the Prussian army was pouring into Bohemia and there was a battle on the 3rd of July at Konegratz, also known as Sadova, and it was a pretty decisive Prussian victory. Uh, Austria was heavily defeated. So they're now facing war on two fronts and they are losing badly. Bismarck offered them an early piece and Austria took it. So here's another element of Bismarck's strategy. You've just knocked the guy down. And what are your options? If you're an MMA fighter, you stand over him and
0: you wait for the ref. You gotta fight until the ref uh calls it. It's yeah, not up to you
1: to decide. But if you just knocked him down, obviously you flex your muscles and give out a roar and intimidate <laughs> and right. No, no,
0: you, you would climb on top and, and uh, do you know try to finish the fight at that point, usually.
1: Okay, so Bismarck does the opposite. He offers Austria a hand up. Hmm. And the peace terms are very generous. Austria loses no territory to Prussia. They will have to give up Venice to Italy. But that's it. In fact, their only punishment really is you know, the, the loss of face with the German Confederation. It's quite clear that uh, they can't compete with Prussia. Prussia is number one. Uh, Meanwhile, some of the German states that had joined the war on Austria's side are going to pay the price. So Prussia annexes Schleswig and Holstein, Hanover, Nassau, Hesse-Cassel, and Frankfurt. And then 22 other North German and Central German states will be formed into the North German Confederation. Huh. Prussia is by far the largest and strongest member. South Germany and Austria are excluded from the North German Confederation. Huh. What's going on there? Um, the, the South German states joined Austria against Prussia. So rather than keeping them in the German Confederation where they will oppose whatever Prussia wants, Prussia simply gathers the smaller states the northern states and dominates them completely Mm -hmm. so it'll be
0: so they don't want to compete Bismarck doesn't want to compete with a bigger uh, power
1: over the it's it's a little bit like NATO and Prussia is the United States right and that means the North German Confederation will now serve Prussian purposes there was one little interesting byproduct Luxembourg uh, a member of the german confederation uh, got their independence in 1867
0: <laughs> well there's another little there's another story so uh, i'm i still i'm still surprised that england uh didn't try to stop this like
1: they did yeah okay. yeah uh the thing is that the war was over in the space of a month
0: uh, it took too too fast
1: yeah. it was so quickly over so britain uh suggested compromise and called to congress yeah uh you know russia didn't oppose that idea but they were certainly more sympathetic to prussia than to austria it's napoleon who dropped the ball right he tried to intervene but too late you remember in the italian unification prussia mobilized their army on the rhine yeah it scared him yeah. if he had mobilized his army that might have held prussia back yeah
0: that's the same thing they said about the Mexican-American War, right? Like they were, you know, the U.S. marched their army to the border and yes. the Mexican army got got themselves organized and marched south to the capital instead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man.
1: So actually, this cost Napoleon considerable embarrassment. His own people started criticizing. They said, what, are you asleep at the wheel? What are you right. doing? You let Italy unite and now this
0: so there's a biography of um, there's a biography of Bismarck that talks about this moment um, of in August 1866. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty good. So let me read this paragraph. The scale of Bismarck's triumph cannot be exaggerated. He alone had brought about a complete transformation of the European international order. He had told those who would listen what he intended to do, how he intended to do it, and he did it. He achieved this incredible feat without commanding an army, without the ability to give an order to the humblest common soldier, without control of a large party, without public support... Indeed, in the face of almost universal hostility, without a majority in Parliament, without control of his cabinet, and without a loyal following in the bureaucracy, he no longer had the support of the powerful interest groups who had helped him achieve power. The most senior diplomats in the Foreign Service were sworn enemies, and he knew it. The Queen and royal family hated him, and the King, emotional and unreliable, would soon have his 70th birthday. With perfect justice, in August 1866, he punched his fist on his desk and cried, I have beaten them all! All! (laughs)
1: it's true the queen hated him Uh, (laughs) that goes back to 1848 when Bismarck uh, wanted the then king to abdicate in favor of his son and the queen never forgot it she hated his guts he did have allies though Um, the minister of state oh uh, rune
0: and he had some rich family right some Uh, super rich family
1: but he also had uh the understanding of uh, Von Moltke, who was the uh, oh, yeah. chief of the uh, German staff. Yeah, you're right, though. The parliament was against it. The population wasn't interested. That's a, uh, yeah. He, he, yeah, he basically did it himself.
0: That was a quote from a historian named Jonathan Steinberg. Okay, yeah. No, oh, television.
1: And he's not finished. Bismarck wasn't finished. So the Austrians are, are defeated, and they are angry. And it's time for them to go back to the drawing board. They, they barely survived the revolutions of 1848 and nine. They got kicked out of Italy. Now they've been kicked out of Germany and they get the message. They really do. It's time to reorganize. This will lead to the, the dual monarchy. The Germans in Austria will do some demographic studies and realize, okay, we are just too small a minority in our own country. So they will offer the Hungarians uh, an alliance and the austrian empire will become austria hungary
0: oh that's uh, not that's from this time
1: it is oh i thought that 1867. was 1867 wow 1867 so the understanding is that hungary will be in charge of half of the empire uh both halves will conduct joint foreign policy and obviously defense and war but in terms of other policies the hungarians are now in charge of education and uh, you know, everything else, and as the guy who negotiated the deal, Count Burst said, the understanding was that both Austria and Hungary would uh, dominate the lesser peoples in the rest of the empire so So the Austrians' job is to keep the Czechs and the Italian minority and the Slovenes uh, down. And the Hungarians will keep the Slovaks and the Croats and, uh, you know, the Serbs and Romanians in the empire. Right. So this is like now.
0: an age of of suppressing subaltern nationalisms, which are on the rise ever since 1848, I guess. And dead on. Never stop. We never stop. <laughs> really. We don't want a
1: repeat of 1848. Yeah. And those South German states, uh, they're now very nervous. They are isolated. They're independent, but they're isolated. And they are surrounded by three very powerful states. Uh, obviously, the enlarged Prussia with its North German Confederation, uh, Austria, and France. And the question is, like, who do we turn to, but also who should we be afraid of? Well, turning to Austria doesn't look like a good idea. They got their butts thoroughly kicked in this war and don't look eager for a rematch. So really, who are you more afraid of? France under Napoleon or Prussia under Bismarck? And that's an interesting debate going on in South Germany in the late 60s. Uh, Bismarck got himself another opportunity and it came along very quickly after this war. Uh, It has to do with Spain (laughs) of all places. I mean, we, we could do an episode on this one. So Spain has been, ever since uh, the fall of the first Napoleon, going through a cycle of revolution, civil war, uh, rebellion. Oh, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Queen Isabella II, who ruled from 1833 to 1868, uh, is, is known as she of the sad destinies. I don't want to go into her whole history it is very interesting look up isabella ii it, it's quite a story she was forced to marry uh, a cousin that she despised uh that didn't go very well her uncle carlos tried to steal the throne from her so you had the carlist wars civil wars uh she was very unpopular. She decided to uh, get herself an heir, but not by her husband, which didn't go over very well. She finally was overthrown in 1868, and Spain kicked her out. And at that point, they said no more Bourbon family. If you remember Louis the Fourteenth and his grandson, and the War of the Spanish Succession in in the 16 and early 1700s. The Bourbon line in Spain has finally come to an end, and Spain is shopping around for a new king. The liberals are back in charge, but the conservatives are there as well. We want a constitutional monarchy. We just want a better king, better ruler than Isabella. So in the late 60s, if you're shopping around for a king, you'd be looking in Germany or in Prussia, wouldn't you? They seem to have that vitality and... uh, (laughs) Their, yeah. that, that successful street.
0: Certain uh, Je ne sais quoi.
1: Yeah. Well, exactly. So they, their choice fell on Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern Sigmaringen. Uh, first of all, he's a Catholic, so he'll fit in in Spain. Second of all, he's a uh, related, you can tell from the first name, Hohenzollern, he's related to the Prussian ruling family. His brother is the. King of Romania already, and uh, Leopold looks like a good choice, so the Spanish offer him the throne, and Leopold says no can I
0: just say this is all so strange that this was happening so recently like this this kind of monarchical politics is not you know the this is the industrial revolution the scientific age and yet they're, they're looking around for people with the right bloodline to put that's on a, the throne
1: you know justin that's a great a great point because in some in many cases it, it, it's not change that dominates its continuity yeah. right yeah. things don't change yeah. Or or as they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same.
0: Like I'm looking at the dates, 1868.
1: It sounds modern, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's basically the end of the Spanish question. Only it doesn't go away. So the first person to find out about this is Bismarck. And he's disappointed, like, Oh darn! He sensed an opportunity there. I could have used that. The other person who uh, hears about this too late is Napoleon III. <coughs> he finds out, but only after Leopold has declined, and he too uh, is gritting his teeth. Oh, I could have used that, right? I could have, I could have told Leopold no way. I could have said never. And, and I could have forced them to back down, and that way I could, you know, recover some prestige, because everybody's criticizing me for not reacting. Well, he didn't do anything with that, but Bismarck did. He saw a, a, an opportunity to stir the pot, to antagonize, to create something, so he contacted the Spanish uh, parliament, I guess, that had made the offer, and he told them, uh, you know, you should offer it to Leopold again. And the Spanish said, well, we, we did. And he said no. And Bismarck said, yeah, but maybe he was just being modest. You know, didn't want to look too eager. You should, you should ask him again. So the Spanish said, okay, sure. And they went to ask Leopold, who was pretty surprised. He said, I told you no. It's no. And then he contacted his cousin, the king of Prussia, and said, would you believe these Spanish guys? They asked me again. And the king said, well, what did you tell them?" He said, I told them no and the Spanish went home, and that's their—that's the end of their part in the story <laughs> because they went shopping somewhere else for a king. Napoleon heard about the second offer and again reacted too slowly. Leopold has already said no, and it's been, it's been in the newspapers. Everybody knows. And Napoleon was just too late to be able to take a stand and demand, oh, so he's now really angry that he missed this and then i don't know who was advising him or whether he thought of this himself he figured well wait maybe i can still maybe i can still make something of this and his motivation has to be the uh, his rep, how badly his reputation has suffered in the last decade so italian unification french people are saying how did this benefit us you know you've just created a powerful state on our border which we now have to defend you know, and worry about that. Uh, Maximilian's disaster in Mexico, that makes Napoleon look bad. The Austro-Prussian War, how did you let that happen? You should have intervened and dictated terms and, you know, taken control of the situation. So he's facing a lot of hostile press uh, in France and he's feeling the pressure. So he decides to try to recoup some prestige here. He sends his ambassador Count Benedetti, to a place called Ems. Ems is a spa where the Prussian king, Wilhelm, is on holiday. So, imagine Wilhelm in his flip-flops with his beach towel and he is uh, approached by the French ambassador and, well, I'll let him tell you himself. Uh, After this episode, Wilhelm had one of his aides, uh, Abakin, write a telegram to Bismarck and here's the the telegram that was sent. Count Benedetti accosted me, some translated as intercepted, but either way, accosted. Count Benedetti accosted me on the promenade and ended by demanding of me in a very importunate manner that I should authorize him to telegraph at once that I bound myself in perpetuity, never again, to give my consent if the Hohenzollerns renewed their candidature. I rejected this demand somewhat sternly, as it is neither right nor possible to undertake engagements of this kind forever and ever. Naturally, I told him that I had not yet received any news, and since he had been better informed via Paris and Madrid than I was, he must surely see that my government was not concerned in the matter. So basically the French ambassador approaches the king and says, I need you to promise that the Hohenzollerns will never be kings of Spain. And the king is first of all confused. What, did you hear something I didn't hear? I thought Leopold said no. And secondly, what are you asking me? To make to declare that, you know, who are you again? And and why would I do this? So the king's a little bit confused. Benedetti didn't get the promise. So he came back a little later and knocked on the door of the king's, I don't know, cottage or wherever he's staying. And the king decided, well, I don't want to, I don't know what he's, why he's bothering me. Like, I don't want to talk to him anymore. Like, tell him (laughs) I'm busy. So that's what happened and that is the M's dispatch. One of the most famous telegrams in history, right? Because it came to Bismarck and he read it and thought, Ooh, this is really interesting. <laughs> what a psychopath. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But <laughs> so
0: he edits it.
1: Yeah. And... He didn't change it. He simply shortened it and made it more, uh, bare bones. Right. So, So here's Bismarck's edited version. After the news of the renunciation of the Prince von Hohenzollern had been communicated to the imperial French government by the royal Spanish government, the French ambassador in Ems made a further demand on His Majesty the King that he should authorize him to telegraph to Paris that His Majesty the King undertook for all time never again to give his assent should the Hohenzollerns once more take up their candidature. His Majesty the King thereupon refused to receive the ambassador again and and had the latter informed by the adjutant of the day that His Majesty had no further communication to make to the ambassador.
0: (laughs) Right. So calculated to make France angry and and...
1: And Germany. And Germany. The first paragraph is for German consumption. Right. And the key word there is After. So after this has all been settled, the French ambassador made a further demand. Yeah. Like, it's over. And, yeah. and we didn't do anything. Right. Leopold said, no. Why are you bothering us with, with a promise for you know, all time, never again? So Germans are going to be a little insulted. Like, who does this guy think he is? Who is this Benedetti? The second paragraph, though, is for French consumption the king of Prussia thereupon refused to receive the ambassador again and had the latter informed by the adjutant of the day that his, mother had, his majesty had no further communication to make to the ambassador. And this was published on July 13th, 1870 and was in the French newspapers on July 14th. Their translation only made it worse because uh, adjutant in Germany is quite clearly uh, an officer like one of the one of the king's aides. Like a low like a lower level. Well aide de camp. So actually oh, his like personal a... assistant kind of thing. Okay. But in French, adjutant means something very different. It means a non commissioned officer, like not even an officer, like a sergeant or or even a corporal, which just makes it more insulting. And then there's the date, July fourteenth. Bastille day. Oh, boy. Bismarck knew what this was going to do. In fact, he called it a red flag before the Gallic bull. He's just antagonizing them to see what it it could lead to. And it led to the Franco-Prussian War because the French were absolutely uh, furious. The French press from that very first day, uh, the description is bellicose. Like, they want a war. And the French assembly actually declared mobilization. So Napoleon, uh, was he swept along or or did he see this as an opportunity? He responded uh, impulsively, uh, emotionally, and declared war. Uh, The Franco-Prussian War...
0: So what's their war aim? What's France trying to do here?
1: Uh, Slap Prussia around and uh, restore their honor. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, What what are you fighting for? What are your aims? What are your goals? And have you done your homework? Well, no. In a fit of anger, they have declared war. Meanwhile, (laughs) Bismarck um, knew what he was doing.
0: So Bismarck is trying to get the smaller German
1: um, states to sign up. Yes. South Germany is going to see the French declaration of war as meaning that here come the French and their war aim is to take over South Germany. They were afraid of Prussia, but now they're more afraid of France, the aggressor. So South Germany will ally with the North German Confederation. Austria is going to stay out. Are they angry at Prussia? Sure. But... Don't forget, they're also angry at France because of kicking them out of Italy. And, and they're busy reorganizing. They're not ready for another war. The British will, you know, propose a Congress if the war drags on. But at, at the outset, they're actually more annoyed with Napoleon for starting it than they are with, with Bismarck. So Napoleon looks like the bad guy here. Uh, Russia is absolutely delighted they're going to take advantage of France being at war to violate the terms of the Crimean War. They're going to put their fleet back on the Black Sea. And Britain, you know, they, they're going to see this, but they're not ready to go to war with Russia by themselves, which means that that Crimean War was basically fought for nothing. <laughs> right. But we already knew that, right? No, well,
0: there was a military glory, though, of the Chinese. Oh, Yes. Yeah,
1: yes. and uh italy well there's one piece of the puzzle left and that's rome where the pope is being protected by french troops you know if the war goes badly for france they might need those troops they might withdraw them so italy is thinking of intervening but they're definitely pro-prussia so once again nobody's going to join france prussia is not going to have to fight on on two fronts and South Germany is going to join them. So French mobilization was a little bit chaotic. They were in the midst of a reorganization. Um, they did have some uh, advantages. You know, many people, again, hindsight, because of the result, think that Bismarck had all the advantages. Not so. The French rifle, the chassepot is significantly better than the German Dreisse gun, which is beginning to show its age. The Chassepot has a range of 1500 meters, is quick to reload. And the Dreisse gun isn't effective much beyond five or 600 meters. So a big advantage to the French. They also have something called the Mitrailleuse, which is a machine gun, an early machine gun. Uh, it doesn't have great range and it's not very mobile, but they position it next to the artillery. And that means that if the Germans want to uh, the attack guns. the French, it's not going to go well. On the other hand, the French artillery is still uh, muzzle loaded. it's uh, The guns are rifled, so their range is long and, and so on, but they have problems with the uh, fuses on the shells. Meanwhile, the Germans have begun using uh, artillery produced by the famous company Krupp, K-R-U-P-P, the guns of Krupp, they are steel uh, breech-loading guns with shells that detonate on contact. So that's major... The, yeah,
0: that's going to be the the, cho- the gun, gun of choice for colonialism in Africa.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 So the, and Asia, I guess. Yeah. The most important uh, thing, I suppose, at this point is that, that, as you said, the French don't have war aims, which means they don't have a plan of campaign Uh, They seem to have expected Austria and South Germany to join them, and they're a little surprised that that doesn't happen. So really, they simply mobilize and move their army to the border. Uh, And one of the first battles, uh, Gravelotte, on August 18th, showcases the French advantage. The German assault on French-prepared positions run into French rifle fire and the mitrailleuse and stop them dead. The Germans lost over 20,000 killed, wounded, and missing, and the French only 12,000, uh, 4,000 of which were taken prisoners. So uh, clear advantage there. Both sides are going to try cavalry charges in this war, which turn out to be a very bad idea. It's, it's fairly clear that uh, firepower has increased to the point where, you know, a, a big crowd of men on horses... It's just too big a target, and just a, just a bad idea. Right. A, a lesson which nobody really seems to have learned since everybody had cavalry. In the civil,
0: yeah, so the In, next big one is the U.S. Civil War, where they didn't learn it, I guess. Oh no, this was after the Civil War, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's because yeah, just guys, the order of civilizations is not necessarily the fully chronological. Uh, we will.
1: But that's a that's good point. Cool. Yeah. Europeans didn't learn anything from the Americans, right? Civil
0: yeah, War. that's the point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and they didn't learn anything from their own experience because in World War One, everybody's still thinking of using yeah.
0: cavalry. Even Crime- yeah, even the Crimean War had happened before this. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the German advantage of uh, artillery and rapid movement came into play here. There were several battles that basically culminated in Sedan where the French main army was completely encircled. The German uh, high command had always wanted to do what Hannibal did to the Romans and a double envelopment. So you go around the flank on both sides and surround them. This is
0: a battle, you know, Hitler um, wrote about what his plan was uh, for the invasion of the Soviet Union. And he said, you know, there have been three great double envelopments in human history, uh, Hannibal's sedan and mine, and mine is going to be more glorious than uh, than the other two. So,
1: uh, yeah, He was aware of those. Yeah, yeah. So on the 2nd of September, the main French army uh, capitulated. They surrendered, along with their nominal commander-in-chief, Napoleon III, Napoleon managed to get himself captured in the first month of the war. So your final verdict is in for all his attempts to be like his uncle, Napoleon, the first, he uh, wasn't. He's <laughs> just uh, been a disaster. <laughs> so the, new, the news of Napoleon's capture reached Paris and immediately set off a revolution. So here you have to go back a little bit. Do you remember 1848? There was a French Revolution. They kicked out Louis Philippe. The Republicans forced an election for president, which was won by Louis Napoleon, yeah. who then overthrew the Republic and established the Second Empire. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people who remember that and, and very bitterly uh Republicans, radicals, socialists, uh, anarchists, and they rise up immediately once the news comes and, and there's an, a revolution. They immediately declare the Third Republic. They form a provisional government called the Government of National Defense. And uh, one of the big decisions that they took early on was not, not to make peace. The Germans seem to have expected, you know, after Sedan, okay, we won, so now it's just a question of making peace, but they're about to learn what Napoleon I learned in Spain.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you, you just captured the guy who would have made peace with you. Yes. So yes. there's nobody there, you know, who will. There were some of the uh, members of this new government who might have been willing to make peace uh, maybe by... Uh, giving up some colonial territory, maybe in uh, in Africa or in Southeast Asia. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, Bismarck's not going to really be interested in that. But somehow uh, his aims were, were found out. He has his eye on the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. Yeah. Uh, wow. These go back to the time of Louis the Fourteenth. Lorraine is French. Uh, Right next to it, though, is Alsace, which is German-speaking. Alsatian <laughs> is another name for a type of dog that's better known as a German shepherd. Yeah. So these guys were conquered in the 1600s by Louis XIV, and they've been French for over 200 years. Uh, many, many prominent French revolutionaries were Alsatian they don't think of themselves as german so there's that shared experience again they think of themselves as french
0: they're Germ- they're, fr- they're french speaking too right
1: no alsatian is their language it's german oh wow they're german speaking frenchmen wow yeah <laughs> yeah so when bismarck demands alsace and lorraine that changes public opinion very dramatically. Their answer is never. And this, remember last episode, we were wondering why would Garibaldi be wanting to fight for France? It's this. It's Bismarck demanding territory that is, in in his mind anyway, intrinsically French that is so anti-national self-determination that (laughs) Garibaldi...
0: (laughs) Bismarck and Garibaldi could be exact polar opposites. eh? Like, just... Bismarck is just pure calculation without any principle at all. Yeah.
1: Garibaldi
0: is almost like principle without any without any strategy.
1: Well, Garibaldi yeah. does win a lot of battles, so he's yeah. got some
0: tactical got sense,
1: right? Yeah, so the quotation uh, was I think you you gave it last last episode, but here it is again. Garibaldi, yesterday I said to you War to the Death to Bonaparte. Today, I say to you, rescue the French Republic by every means.
0: (laughs) I love that guy. (laughs) I just love that
1: guy. Uh, Meanwhile, the German army advanced and surrounded Paris. As of the 19th of September, Paris is under siege. Uh, One of the chief ministers, Gambetta, uh, actually flew over German lines in a hot air balloon and he went to southern France to organize resistance there. I just thought that was a cool
0: Wow, one. that is cool. I mean, that's not, yeah. and that's a pretty new technology. Is it a new technology? I guess they had them during the French Revolution, right?
1: They had them earlier. Yeah, yeah. the Mong- yeah. Mongolfier brothers, early 1700s, as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. Uh, in any case, there are <clears throat> several battles uh, outside of Paris uh, Orléans, Le Mans, Bapome, and Saint Quentin most of these are French defeats. So the armies that would be coming to aid Paris uh, don't get there.
0: So it's just kind of organizationally not working out for them, I guess. Logistics no. organization. No. After, yeah.
1: Yeah. So Paris is starving, <clears throat> but unwilling to surrender. And on top of that, there are elements in Paris who are unhappy with the government of national defense, who are thinking of negotiating an armistice. Uh, and that will lead to another uprising in Paris. And this is your Paris commune. So remember that some of the people in Paris are radicals. Um, they are, uh, radical republicans uh, socialists anarchists and these people have coalesced in the national guard and the national guard have really stopped obeying the provisional government the government of national defense they refuse to wear uniforms they refuse to obey officers that are imposed on them they they elect their own officers and they don't carry the tricolor flag; right. they carry they carry a red flag. Yeah,
0: I think that's I. You know, I, I it probably yeah. It's hard to say how how big a influence this was in European or like world history. Maybe not that big, but it was certainly uh, what they were fighting for, and their program was a big inspiration to future communists, I guess.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, Marx is watching, and he, of course, believes that, well, here it is at yeah, last. Yeah, the
0: Civil War in France. Yeah, that's a, and, and a lot of his, um, yeah, there were a lot of people that were specifically, like, you know, knew him, students of his, that kind of relationship that were fighting on the side for the commune, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's it. They ended up fighting against the national Yeah. The government of national defense. They tried to uh, seize power October 31st, uh, failed, but they tried again in January because that's when the provisional government began negotiating an armistice with the Germans. Oh,
0: wait, you know what? Let me tell you a little bit more about Marx here just because. So, in a, because we're not going to get past uh, this. This part, like this this story for us today, this episode ends in 1870-71 with the unification of Germany, but um, this, the rise of the social democrats or the left in Germany kind of steadily moves forward from this point. Um, and I think uh, and the Marx is, and Bismarck has to do a number of things including institute a fair number of socialist <laughs> policies uh, towards the end of his tenure to kind of co-opt them uh, okay. as well as repressing them. So it's a you know, very familiar strategy. But um, I just wanted to say this about, so this is Marx's analysis uh, in an interview a, a, couple, a decade later, but of what happened in this war. So he's uh, being interviewed by the Chicago Tribune in 1879. And he says, Napoleon was considered a genius until he fell, then he was called a fool. Bismarck will follow in his wake. He began by building up a despotism under the plea of unification. His course has been plain to all. The last move is but an attempted in in imitation of a coup d'etat, but it will fail. The socialists of Germany, as of France, protested against the War of 1870 as merely dynastic. They issued manifestos foretelling the German people if they allowed the pretended war of defense to be turned into a war of conquest, they would be punished by the establishment of military despotism and the ruthless oppression of the productive masses. The Social Democratic Party in Germany, holding meetings and publishing manifestos for an honorable peace with France, were at once prosecuted by the Prussian government and many of the leaders in Still, their deputy Alone dared to protest and very vigorously too in the German Reichstag against the forcible annexation of French provinces. However, Bismarck carried his policy by force and people spoke of the genius of Bismarck. The war was fought, and when he could make no conquest, he was called upon for original ideas and he signally failed. The people began to lose faith in him, his popularity was on the wane. He needs money. The state needs it. He has taxed the people for his military and unification plans until he can tax them no longer, and now he seeks to do it with no constitution at all. Uh, huh. So, it's an interesting uh, Yeah, I mean, he's, he's looking at it as like the socialist minority and how they understood um, you know, they kind of warned that if the war went the way that it turned out going, that Bismarck would Impose a more despotic government on Germany, which
1: I guess they did. That he did, yeah. Mixed,
0: yeah. All mixed, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, the armistice took place. The Germans stopped shelling and then were surprised because they could still hear gunfire inside Paris. So the Germans are surrounding Paris, not shooting, and the French are shooting each other in Paris, right? Uh. Conservative estimates say somewhere between six and ten thousand people were killed. Wow. Forty thousand were arrested. Uh, only a handful were executed. Many of them were held on uh, prison ships for a year or or more.
0: And these are by this is being done by the Prussian army, or no?
1: No, this is being done by the French provisional government. Oh, okay, so the Third Republic was born in hatred, right? You know, you should be angry at the Germans. Instead, the French are angry at each other. Uh, Bismarck imposes the Treaty of Frankfurt in 1871. Uh, There's only three main parts. Uh, The first is France has to pay an indemnity of 5 billion francs, a really dangerous precedent, which will come back to haunt Germany in 1918. Yeah. Uh, second, Bismarck takes Alsace and Lorraine, which are uh, excellent defensive uh, terrain, which will come in really handy in World War One. but then again, are a major cause of World War One. So did Bismarck make a mistake here? And finally, Bismarck uh, basically makes the French be a republic, and they have to elect a new government by universal suffrage which is a really curious detail for Bismarck to want considering that he is anti-democratic and everything he stands for so the theory is that he knew that universal suffrage would leave the French uh, even more bitterly divided besides last time they had universal suffrage they elected Louis Napoleon so (laughs) Let's let them screw that up again. And that is basically the end of the war. Uh, French mm-hmm. troops were withdrawn from Italy, uh, from Rome, and uh, Italy quickly snapped up the Pope's city. And, well, we already discussed what that led to. The German princes met with Bismarck and King Wilhelm in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, just outside Paris, where they proclaimed the German Empire. So there's a dramatic moment and there's a very dramatic picture. Yeah, so so the Germans a
0: choice of place to do it, isn't it? Oh,
1: it's such a bad <laughs> such a bad thing to do. Yeah. Here here is rubbing it in with a vengeance. So Versailles where Louis XIV, you know, uh, planned his wars to take over German territory. Well, now Germany is saying in your face. Yeah. And how can the French ever look at Versailles again without seeing the Germans celebrating their big victory? Is that, well, is
0: Bismarck behind that? Cause that's not, that doesn't, doesn't sound. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't
1: sound like him. Right. Yeah. So his thinking is once we take Alsace and Lorraine, that makes it absolutely sure that France will never, Ever uh, forgive us for this? Right. They're gonna They're gonna want revenge, yeah. so I might as well kick them while they're down. And yeah. you know, unlike Austria, I can't let them up easy and make friends with them. So yeah. since they're going to be our enemies for all time, I eh, might as well. But yeah, the payback on that one it it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that the peace treaty for World War One will be signed at Versailles where the Germans will be forced to come and be humiliated in their turn. So it's almost like, you know, washing out Versailles and sanitizing it and rededicating it. And yeah. So from day one, after this war, uh, Europe has been transformed. The new Germany changes everything, the balance of power. You look at a map, it's ridiculous. There's this monstrously large country in the central, in the center of Europe, uh, more populous than France or Britain uh, with the most supercharged economy in Europe. They are number one in industrial output, uh, miles of railroad. Their economy is just booming. The, The only country that is stronger than them is the United States. So Britain has now been passed by Germany and by the U.S., and the US is still growing. But within Europe, Germany is unmatched, and their military has just proved several times in succession that they are absolutely dominant. What Bismarck achieved, I think you mentioned it before, was something that no one wanted, yeah, <laughs> that no yeah. one expected especially especially Britain. Right? right? Yeah. Well, European statesmen are absolutely stunned. They're yeah. sitting there with stupid expressions on their faces, wondering, how did this happen? Yeah. yeah. You know, we didn't want this and the answer again is that the war was really short uh four months really and, and it was basically over after the first yeah there was just some more fighting to be done and the siege of paris but it just happened so quickly They're they're shocked but they've learned some lessons and they have learned that well, learned they've some learned bad some bad lessons. lessons. They've learned some awful lessons. The yeah. first lesson that they have learned is that war is short. The, yeah. the war against Denmark was over in a couple of weeks. The Austro-Prussian War was over in a month. The Franco-Prussian War in four months. A- and these are guys whose memory is of the Crimean War dragging on for a couple of years. Yeah. Or, or even older of the Napoleonic Wars going on for decades. Yeah. So this is, comes as, as a shock to them. War is short, and that means a lot of things. First of all, liberals realize, hey, war's not so bad. Yeah. You know, if It's over quick. Yeah. But how do you get a short war? Well, you have to have a bigger army. You have to, <laughs> you have to mobilize more yeah. speedily, yeah. and you have to avoid the fate of France and Austria. So every country in Europe increases the size of their standing army. And that means that they have to spend more on armaments. That means that they have to train their troops and they have to rehearse, they have to practice mobilization so they can be as quick as possible and not be caught off guard. But then that also means that with their larger army, they think, oh, we could win a war really quick, especially if our army's bigger. And that means over the next few decades, Europe's going to become this enormous armed camp with millions of men under arms, <laughs> so ready to go to, uh, much notice.
0: Leading to the uh, another uh, great German, Albert Einstein's famous quote, you cannot simultaneously prevent and prepare for war.
1: Uh, they are preparing for it. They're, they're not worried about preventing. See, there's another lesson that they have learned from Bismarck, blood and iron. <laughs> That's how you do things. Once you build up your military, don't be afraid to use it. Look at what he achieved. Prussia has taken over all of Germany, you know, so yeah, they, they come to the conclusion that Bismarck is a genius and therefore he must be emulated, copied. This is the management strategy that works. So we're all going to get on board with this.
0: Best practices. (sighs)
1: Yes. (laughs) So what, what is his secret? What do they think he did? Well, the first thing is realpolitik. We're back to Machiavelli. Whatever works is good. Yeah. Stir up trouble, edit a telegram, antagonize, take yeah. advantage of opportunities. Yeah. Be you know, be flexible and be uh, uh, beat, and, yeah, beat.
0: just beat beat the other side, whatever they're doing, whatever they want.
1: Yeah. yeah, and the second one, as I say, is this blood and iron. Build build up your military, and don't be afraid to you know crack a few eggs to make your omelet.
0: Yeah, but really, I mean, it's interesting because. I- what stands out now this time around hearing the story is it's like the Othello I've always found when I watched Othello like it's not striking how smart Iago is. It's only striking how dumb Othello is that he doesn't see this <laughs> and it's like it seems like Bismarck's genius comes from the like stupidity of Napoleon the in a lot of in a lot of ways. He-
1: Yeah, I would give Bismarck credit for being very clever.
0: Yeah, clever. Yeah, that's the right word. But
1: but Marx was half right. Bismarck has now created a situation where France hates Germany and, and absolutely must recover Alsace and Lorraine and wipe out the stain of 1870. So you've just created an enemy for life, and that's going to dictate German policy for the next, you know, 50 years.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because he said something, Bismarck said something like, you know, I'm counting on the fact that uh, if we win, nobody's afraid, uh, but if France wins, then everybody's afraid. Because it was like, France is the big power uh, at that moment and so uh and now Uh, now you have that dynamic working against you instead of not
1: anymore yeah yeah. so france is going to be thoroughly locked into revanchism revenge is is just the, the central fact of their you know political life for the next few decades the the shame uh of versailles has to be wiped out uh, and yet they're going to remain bitterly divided because of the Paris Commune. So mm-hmm. rather than have a moderate compromise government, the French are going to alternate between right and left yeah. uh, and, and hate each other, absolutely hate each other. So that's going to be difficult for them. And Bismarck's future policy has basically been dictated. Uh, Germany needs time to digest its gains to to really become a whole and he wants to stay out of further wars and he wants to keep france isolated as long as they don't have an ally germany has nothing to worry about he bismarck figures we can beat them any day yeah unless they find an ally so we have to prevent anyone from joining with them this is the beginning of this network of treaties and alliances to keep other powers uh, yeah this French. is this
0: is like metternich 2.0 it's he's He's gone back to that conservative, like in the international sense, because he was cons- always socially and politically conservative, but what he was trying to do with German unification was radical in terms of changing the or- international order. But now that he's done it, he's back to being conservative
1: in a way. Yeah, maintain the status quo.
0: Yeah. 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 So this is. Which,
1: ironically, his attempts are going to lead in a pretty straight line right to world war 1.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It, it's the it's it's a lot like Napoleon in that way, right? Like it's some it's this kind of genius that you wish you'd, you didn't have. Like there's this glorious moment and then there's all all this destruction that follows because of this genius figure that does these genius things that are so disastrous ultimately.
1: Yeah, that's the problem with opportunism, you know? You seize the opportunity. Yeah. And then you're stuck with the consequences thereafter.
0: Yeah. So Bismarck goes on to, yeah, like.
1: Oh, know, he, dominates, yeah. he dominates European politics for the next uh, 20, 25 years.
0: Yeah. But there's nothing, there's no moment where after, for the next 25 years, there's no like, wow, is Bismarck a genius? It's just like, oh God, like what is Bismarck doing? you know, battling the Pope and you know, organizing well, the cologne. He,
1: mm-hmm. he still has some some high moments in diplomacy and there are a couple of Congress well, we'll we'll deal with yeah. it again when we get to imperialism, right? The Congress of Berlin and all that.
0: And he introduces old age insurance and disability ah, yes. insurance and sickness yeah. insurance under pressure of the yeah, social democrats. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was uh, that's the that's the way I remember it. What a what a story! And uh, speaking of uh, giant figures, I just finished W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, biography of John Brown last night, and there are some quotable quotes. I'm going to be using that uh, and a book, a relatively new book, uh, I think it's from last year, called Force and Freedom. Uh, by Kelly Carter Jackson, uh, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. So I've been reading about the non-resistance, William Lloyd Garrison, right? Uh, he's always the foil to um, John Brown because Garrison was a non... He was a newspaper guy and he called him- they called themselves non-resistance. So they were pacifists, uh, absolutely no violence um, but they're abolitionists. And so John Brown <laughs> was pretty contemptuous of that position, as you can imagine from his record. Um, not a fan. And they were not—they were no fan of his. But there's this other um, research that Kelly Carter Jackson has done. Yeah, this book is from this year, 2020. Well, the paperback is 2020. Um, and it's about the Black abolitionists uh, who also believed in armed struggle. So, yeah, this is a relatively undiscovered, you know, this is some new research that's just come out. So, I'm, uh, I'm, I have not read that one yet. So, I'll, I'll, so I think the first episode about our civil war is about, is going to be about these different abolitionists and these debates. And then that'll be our distant causes of the war before uh, you can do the. The military aspects, which we've been also studying through wargaming for I don't know how many years, 20,
1: 25. <laughs>